Well, good morning to each one. It's good to, uh, it's been really good to have been here this morning. And uh, thank you, youth, for singing. Uh, you just keep getting better. So that's good. Really appreciate that. Appreciate the energy. And thanks for being part of the congregation here. I'd like to uh, take you back this morning to the, uh, the study that we've been uh, doing on, on the church, the New Testament ecclesiology. This Look at the fourth book of Revelation. It's in the city of uh, Thyatira. And uh, I've just given it a subtitle, The Mechanisms of a Jezebel Spirit. And I'd like to just sort of jump right in there. And I just want to maybe make mention of this, that I've heard numerous or different uh, ideas of what the Jezebel Spirit is. Uh, But I want to maybe focus on an area that uh, may not be thought about, and have thought about previously, but uh, is, I think, there nonetheless. So if you have your Bibles, or you can watch in the PowerPoint, we'll start reading in verse 18 of, Genesis, or of Revelation chapter 2. And it goes like this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things said God, and his fast. I know and your patience, and as works, the last are not because you will yourself a prophetess to teach my servants idols. And I gave her a time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who committed with her into, a, into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the children know that he who searches the mind, and I will one of you according to your to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as, as many as have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule over them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star, And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in a passage like this, there are many different directions that we could go, and a lot of different thoughts. And so we sort of have to narrow it down maybe to one theme, and certainly we don't want to become redundant as we teach through these different churches that are found, the seven different churches that are found in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of things and, uh, but I do want to pick up with what I've, what I've referred to as the mechanism spirit. Of all the seven churches found in the book of Revelation, Thyatira is probably the one that we know least about. There's not a whole lot of history concerning this uh, little town. So, but the, the we do want to, uh, that we do know about it, I'd like to sort of take you on a, on a whirlwind tour of the city. Thyatira lay in the, uh, in, a, uh, in the valley of a major trade route. So what today is called the uh, 
Akisar, the or Akisar, sorry, the uh, modern town today. It was situated at the bottom of uh, of, of a junction of a, of a Roman road, and uh, if you recall correctly, uh, we see Thyatira right up here at the uh, sort of sandwich between Sardis and Pergamum to the north. So this was sort of a junction, a main street, a commerce street, a trade route, if you will, with, uh, with Pergamum to the, to the northwest and Sardis to the southeast. And uh, <clears throat> according to a lot of other maps, uh, the, the, this one shows uh, Pergamum being a little bit further northwest than a lot of them do, but it doesn't matter. Um, and then, of course, the Aegean <clears throat> being about being about uh, 40, 40, 42 miles to the west of Thyatira. <clears throat> All seven churches in the book of Revelation are, of course, sort of situated on the western edge of modern-day Turkey today, but what was of the Roman Empire in that day. One of the things that we know about Thyatira was that it was a relative small city, but it boasted a busy commercial center. It had lots of businesses. And like I mentioned earlier, even with that trade route running through there, it had a lot of uh, trade going on. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, businesses were, were located there. And it's, there's also ample uh, uh, evidence that the city was well known for its, uh, for its trade guilds. And uh, just for you who may not understand, or just to clarify that term, uh, it is something that is very similar to our, to our modern-day trade unions, the union as we know them today. And, um, and, and they, organize, or they, they, uh, they, they function much the same way. A, a union organization today <coughs> uh, are, is, a, is a group of workers that have come together dedicated to to protect the interests of the work environment, the wage scale, and, and on and on, and some of the benefits. And, and of course, they, they elect members, uh, sort of a democracy that they elect members to represent the rest of the people and uh, make uh, decisions on their behalf. And, of course, today we have a very influential uh, group uh, known as the Union, much the way that it was back then. <coughs> and so... The, uh, the, uh, these trade guilds were, were a very tight-knit community. And I just want to talk about this a little bit because it's very significant to the church. It was a very community of tradesmen. There were, um, there were tent makers. There were coppersmiths. There were carpenters. There were one of the things in particular uh, was there was there uh, was there tanners and the weavers and they were also the producers of dye. Now, if you think about that one little passage in the book of, of Acts where it talks about Lydia coming from, she was a Gentile that came from Thyatira, and she was known for her uh, for her uh, uh, making uh, uh, garments of purple, and so they were they actually had a a, a uh, a root where they extracted a dye, and uh, they were known for, for that as well. So anyhow, these, uh, these guilds would, would make a very tight-knit community. 
Thyatira was probably had more uh, of these guilds or organizations in their city than any other contemporary Roman uh, pro- in, in the Roman province around them. Various groups also wielded a had a very strong political, a very strong economic, and a very strong social influence among the people in that area. In fact, they were so strong that it was almost, for the most part, it was compulsory for, for people to join these uh, unions or these organizations in order for you to, to start a biz- business or to run a business. And uh, that, uh, you know, we even have some of that in, ver- in, in certain locations of, of the United States. It seems like the union is, is, uh, is stronger in some areas. We don't bump into that quite as much out here in the country. But back then, this was almost a compulsory thing. And uh, for them, much like it does for some people today. But what added to the conflict of them joining these labor forces, particularly for the Christians, was the fact that there was also a spiritual dimension that was attached to each one of these organizations. Each one of these guilds would have a, a particular guardian god or goddess that would supposedly govern their organization. And uh, that created a problem. The, uh, the patrons, uh, the patron members would, would be expected to, to attend all of the... Uh, the uh, functions, um, usually held at the local Greek or Roman temples. Uh, the other thing that we know is that a lot of these business meetings often turn into wild banquets that were filled with, with, uh, with a lot of sexual immorality and, and, uh, and immoral behavior. And um, we... Um, we also know that, uh, that in these meetings, they would oftentimes, it would actually be a, a type of a worship that, that uh, would take place when they would meet together. And uh, they would offer food to the idols and then afterward turn right around and, and give it to the people to eat. And this, real, this poised a real problem in Thyatira. Most of them were torn between wanting to provide for their families on the one hand and on the other hand wanting to honor Christ and his standards and do what is right and live a life of integrity. So I think we can understand sort of the, the, uh, the temptation of compromise that was there in front of them and that was at stake. Put yourself in their shoes. You know, what would you have done? What would you do? if you were required to be a part of these organizations or guilds and yet trying to maintain the Christian integrity that uh, Christ would want us to have. What were they to do? Well, I think the only safe answer to that is to go to the Word of God and see what He has to say about it. And so let's do that. Let's go back to the verse where, it, where, where, where Jesus is looking at the church of Thyatira and... Uh, he, he mentions that he observes four things that he really appreciates about this congregation. 
I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So the first compliment that he gives to they were a loving church. Now every one of us loves to be a part of a loving church, right? We like to be a part where we can come in and we feel accepted and where there's warmth and there is, there is a, uh, there's a, a, a drawing in. We all like that. And uh, that's what this church was about. They were a church who, who gave service. They, they, they worked and they, they did not, they put shoe leather to their words. It wasn't a, a mouth or a lip service only, but they put to, 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 to uh, task what, what they talked about. And that's a good thing. I think you hear us pastors saying that time and again. Uh, calling you and ourselves, not only to talk about Christianity, but to live it out. Thy kingdom come, Jesus prayed. Thy kingdom come, he's talking to the Father in heaven. Thy kingdom come, he's talking to God the Father. Thy kingdom come uh, in, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm mixed up here. Thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. That was Jesus' prayer, and that's what, well, that's what we want to do. Uh, bringing God's kingdom down here on the earth. They were a faithful church. Um, and of course, they were a growing church. Based that on what it says, their patience and works were more now than ever before. I like this congregation. I like what I see. And uh, from all appearance, it would, it would look like uh, it would be something that I'd want to be a part of. But it's a little bit like an apple that has a worm inside of it. Sometimes the outside of the apple looks really good, but you don't see the worm that's inside that apple. And that's a little bit the, the, the case that we had here in this congregation. Because right in the next, right in the next, by the way, I'd just like to say this, that really, as we look on the outside of this, it's really, it stands for a model for all churches. And my question, as I was studying this, I thought to myself, could Christ say this about Berea Christian Fellowship? Could Christ say this about us? A loving church, a church, a faithful church, doing more now than we did before? He can. Along in verse 20 it says, Nevertheless, despite of what I have said, everything that I have said up until this point, the growth and the apparent faithful ministry of this church, there was some kind of noise going on that should not have been going on that was leading people astray. The text points out, and it says, that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, uh, we don't know whether this self-acclaimed prophetess, whether her name was actually Jezebel or not, we really don't know, and it really, in some ways, doesn't matter. But I speculate that it was simply an inference to the character that is associated to the original Jezebel that we find in the Old Testament. I speculate that's what he was referring to. Either way, whether it was her real name or not, there are some similarities between the two individuals and their character. character. And we'd like to look at that commonality between them two. The woman Jezebel, that woman Jezebel that is mentioned in this passage, 
and the Old Testament Jezebel that we find in the book of Kings uh, numerous times, the queen of Ahab. <clears throat> couple similarities I want to point out. The first one that we see is that each one of these, both of these women held positions of influence. One was the queen of Israel, and the other one was a prophetess in a church. If you're a kind of person that desires positions of responsibility and influence, allow me to speak some words of reality to you straight from Scripture. Luke chapter 12, verse 48, and you don't have to turn to that if you don't want, but it's the, the account where Jesus is talking about the faithful servant and the unfaithful servant and what takes place between the two. And then he wraps up that passage of Scripture by saying, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. From that passage of Scripture and others that uh, are like that, I have come, I have concluded that there are varying degrees of punishment for those who are unfaithful uh, to their calling. Sometimes we're attracted to the pizzazz and the perceived glamour that goes, that goes along with certain positions or individuals that hold certain positions, and we fail to consider the fact that with that responsibility comes a lot of accountability. The mere fact that she was a prophetess automatically made her more responsible. And if she was not a faithful prophetess, then according to that scripture that I just read in Luke, I would see her punishment as being more severe. So she had better speak the truth. The second similarity that we see is that each of these two women tried to replace God's authoritative word with a poor substitute. A prophet or a prophetess, in this case, is one who speaks the oracles of God. Now let me clarify that God's problem with this woman Jezebel, or that woman Jezebel as he refers to her, was not her sexual orientation. It was the teaching that was wrong. In the Old Testament, numerous times, we, uh, we actually find different prophetesses. Uh, in, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, the sister of Moses and Aaron is referred to, Miriam is referred to as a prophetess. Judges 4, verse 4, Deborah, the judge of Israel at one point, is also referred to as a prophetess. In 2 Kings verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 14, five men, including one of the priests, says that they went to um, Huldah the prophetess. And then over the New Testament, in the book of Luke 2, 36, Anna was a prophetess, the one that was at the temple. She was a prophetess, it's referred to. And then Acts chapter 21, verse 9, this was after the, the church was birthed. Philip, the evangelist, that famous evangelist, it is said of him in verse 19, or verse 9, chapter 21, referring to Philip, he says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. 
So the problem was with, with God was not the, she was, he was not rejecting her on the, on the basis of her being a woman prophet. She was rejected because her revelation did not come from God or his word. What she was saying was something outside of the authority of God. The third correlation that we have between the two is that each were given an opportunity to repent. If we go back to the, uh, to the passage, it says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this part because I want to turn most of our attention to the mechanisms of the Jezebel spirit. Suffice it to say that, we, that, that the weakness of most self-acclaimed prophets is that they are so absorbed in themselves that they hardly ever receive counsel, but they're quick to give counsel. Their conceit blinds them, blinds them to the, the, to the impending judgment that, that really awaits them. And yet, for a season, we see God's faithfulness just time and time again. In fact, we see it right here in that passage. I gave her time to repent. Isn't that Christ? Isn't that the character and nature of Christ? How many of us, how many of us, have experienced God's grace just time and time again. We have stumbled, we've fallen, and he is so long-suffering and waiting. And yet, there is a time when that runs out for us. And then the fourth one that we see is that each of them had judgments issued against them. Indeed, I will cast her into a, a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with, de with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your words. Listen to the judgment spoken against Queen Jezebel, uh, and, and take note of the similarities between them. In the book of Kings it says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Pretty serious stuff, really, if you think about it. It reminds me of, of the little ditty I once heard that goes like this. A sailor on duty got frantic because he fell into the briny Atlantic. After hours in the sea, he was saved yesterday and was hoisted upon the Titanic. Listen to a false prophet, or listening to a false prophet, is like climbing aboard a ship that is destined to sink. You can't justify yourself simply by the fact that it is a prophetic word when it is really not a prophetic word, when it is false or no truth in it. And if you, if, you, if you heed that, or if you listen to that, you will be going down with the ship, so to speak. What kind of heresy did this woman Jezebel prophesy or teach that was leading the Christians astray? 
What merited that kind of judgment against her? I have heard the uh, most often when this is taught, or many times when this is taught, a lot of the focus is given on the immorality, the sexual immorality of of uh, of her of the looseness uh, that was attached to to her uh, to her um, to her teaching, and of course centered around how how the, the uh, how women should be chaste and and pure and, and upright. But I'd like this morning. Although I'm not throwing that out, I want to th- sort of give you another idea to this. By all appearances, what I could tell from, from this passage of Scripture was that she began to teach these local Christians by the authority of a prophetic word that it was all right for the Christians to join themselves to the local guilds and to participate in the uh, lascivious debaucheries that was going on, and, and yet without compromising their faith. Uh, this included eating meats offered to idols. And uh, there was tremendous pressure for these people to do that. There was pressure from the, from the uh, worldly-minded trade unions to join their associations. And uh, like I said earlier, a lot of it was because their livelihood depended on it. But added to that external pressure that they faced from the business community was also the prevailing Jezebel spirit among the congregation that was, quote, spoken from the Lord that it was okay for them to be a part of that system. Now, the philosophy of that spirit is really not much different from what we oftentimes hear today. I'm sure you've heard this. I know I've heard it. People say, well, hey, business is business. The trouble is that I hear a note of compromise in that statement. Too many have the mentality that if, if business practices collides Christian principles, then the principles need to go. Because, hey, you have to make a living. You have to survive. But really, that mentality fosters a compartmentalized lifestyle. And it really has no room for the Christian. Something that we need to understand very clearly and I, I just want to take the time because I think this is very, very important for us because it affects us in different areas of life. God operates under There's something very foundational about God that he operates under principle. Think of the balance that principle brings to law and grace. See, in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, you see these principles at work. If we were to take law without principle, 
It is cold and calculated. It is ruthless and it's harsh. So if you simply look at the laws that God had put out there in the Old Testament, many of them seem, seem very, very indifferent and, and something that is unattainable. The opposite is also true. Grace apart from principle is without conviction and parameters. There's a, a uh, it's a license for wrong living. And I think maybe this is a little bit, this is the side possibly that they were erring on. Apparently Jezebel Thyatira was teaching grace without principle. When principle really in essence is what brings the two of them back together again and allows them to work harmoniously with each other. One of the principles that I want to talk about this morning and that relates very directly to the church at Thyatira and to us today is the principle that I call the conscience principle. I'd like to, to, to explain the conscience principle with an illustration. When we were up north and working with, uh, with uh, uh, the, the church there, there was a, a young man, Mike, who had become a Christian as a as a young as a young uh, as a young man before he was married, and Mike has Mike had his his share of ups and downs. Uh, you know, sometimes he'd do really good, and the next time he'd fall off the wagon and he'd get back to drinking and he'd be into that for a month or two and and then he'd pull away from that and 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 repent and just I don't want to go there and anyhow he had his shares of up and ups and downs. But at one of the times when he was doing really well, he did some schooling, and, um, and he did very well through that time. Bright kid, good guy. He was, he was very, had a lot of, uh, he was very sharp, actually. And um, he, uh, he completed his class, his course, and uh, they had a, a graduation uh, for that class. At the ceremony, eagle feather along with his diploma. Well, that next week he came to me, and uh, he asked me, he said, hey, James, he said, what do you think about that, the eagle, fe- eagle feather? You think I should, you think I should keep it? You think I should uh, hang it up on my wall? Now, if I were to ask you this morning, and let's just do that, raise your hand, who all thinks that he should have hung his eagle feather on the wall? How many here think nothing wrong with an eagle feather hanging on the wall? All right, come on, don't be bashful. Um, if I would have been given an eagle feather, I think it would have been neat. I've never had an eagle feather. And I'd probably put it on my desk somewhere and sort of display it out there. But I cautioned him against it, and here's why. Because I understood the dynamic of relationship that a North American Indian has with the eagle. The eagle is considered a very uh, important bird. It is thought of as sort of the mediator between heaven and earth. Uh, It is the mediator between the great spirit and our spirit. 
And uh, when, when you have an eagle flying over your home, it is good omen. Um, the eagle is respected and revered. Many times when the elders would talk, maybe at a ceremony of some kind, either a graduation or, a, or a, um, even a funeral or different, or their powwows, oftentimes the, he would be stroking an eagle feather as he would be talking. And just standing there as he'd be talking, he'd be stroking the eagle feather. I understood Mike's culture and the significance that was attached to it, and that's why I cautioned Mike against it. Now, even if his conscience would have allowed him to keep that, my further question and my challenge to him was, what would your non-Christian friends think when they see that hanging on your wall? I explained to him why it would be difficult for him to, expl- to participate in this activity, and, and he, had that, he had that question in his mind, hence that's why he came to me. And uh, I challenged him to put his faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, in the true mediator who is Jesus Christ. So on the principle of conscience, or the, the conscience principle, it may have been wrong for him to keep it, but it could have been right for me to keep it. Is that true? The same principle goes for the church of Thyatira on the issue of eating meat offered to idols. You see, for them, I think it was wrong, period. Because their culture was so entrenched, so ingrained, so steeped into idolatry that any kind of association to it had a message. It was hard for them to to separate acts of participation from acts of worship. Obviously, that woman Jezebel taught that it was okay for them to participate in these activities uh, as if it were a word from the Lord. I want to flip the coin real quickly for a further illustration. Let's say there's a young lady that uh, has been taught from little up. And in fact, it was interesting that some of this conversation just surfaced a little bit in our, in our Sunday school. Let's say a young lady has uh, been taught from little up and understood that according to Scripture, a, a, a woman's head should be covered when praying or prophesying. And as an adult, by free choice, she chooses to apply this principle and to wear the head veil. But at a later point in life, perhaps from the pressure of a community of people that do not see scriptures in the same way, she begins to question the importance of that tradition. One of the arguments perhaps that she would hear is that there are other Christians out there who do not wear the veil. And eventually she may come to the place where she disregards it and, does, and chooses not to practice it entirely. Maybe at first there is, there is a, uh, sh- there's a very self-consciousness about this. And maybe even, maybe even a twinge of maybe guilt or certainly an awareness of this or question. 
But eventually that passes. And she may even go to the extent of being one of those who applies pressure to another individual, saying that God really does not require that of us according to Scripture. My question to you is, and I'll just ask it in a question form, is there a level of accountability with that person that may not be there with one who has never been taught otherwise? Does the conscience principle apply here? And I think that's what God was very upset about with, and I, and I just chose one. There's many other kinds of principles that, that would apply here in our culture and in our day. But I think that's what God was, was talking about here when he, when he lamented the fact that they were involved in something. You see, I could go out with a free conscience right now if I know if I know that there has been some kind of meat that was offered to an idol and it would be for sale, maybe at a discounted price, I honestly might, and I, I think I'd have the freedom in my conscience to go buy it and eat it. I got a deal. <laughs> Avi, what do you think? You know, we're always looking for these deals. I would have no guilt attached to that, to that uh, action. Because there's, in my culture, in my surroundings, in my setting, that's just not part of, part of who I am or what I am. But for them, it was not that way. And that's why Paul later on then, it's not a conflict of Scripture when Paul later on comes in, in the book of Corinthians and says, hey, if your conscience allows you to eat meat off or title, eat it. Give thanks to God and eat it. It's not, we all know that there's only one God, he basically says. And so even if it's offered to a, quotes God, there really is only one true God. But he also comes along and says, now, now, wait a minute, now, wait a minute. Before you take that liberty too far, if it causes a brother to stumble and fall, then it's better for you not to eat meat at all than to make that brother to stumble. So there's a lot of principle going on here in this, uh, in this concept here. In closing, <clears throat> I want to outline three mechanisms of the Jezebel spirit. Now I teach you what to look for and what to be aware of with the Jezebel spirit. The first one is that the Jezebel doctrine teaches that something evil can be good. I think we see manifestations of this spirit running rampant in our churches today. And there's a lot of illustrations that we could give, but let me just mention a couple of them. There's a popular philosophy out there that says it is okay to pursue material possessions because it is a sign of God's blessing on your life. Give and God is going to give back to you many times over. Now that principle is true, but the motivation is wrong. And by the way, most of the time when it's talking about when, when that philosophy is taught or that theology is taught, it's taught with the idea of giving funds and God will repay you with funds. 
Another popular manifestation of this spirit teaches that the Holy Spirit overrides the instructions of Scripture. Doing away with the Bible is okay as long as you're in communion with God and you rely on the Spirit for His revelation. Very popular around us today. I hear from God. God told me to do this, even if it's contrary to to Scripture. My only question is, which God told you to do it? Because the Holy Spirit does not separate himself from the living word, which we call the Scriptures. There are many other examples of this spirit showing face. Possibly the hottest issue in our culture today is the one that that says homosexual marriages are okay as long as they're based on love. And we know (coughs) that that's not true. The Jezebel spirit hates God's true word. Christians who are bound by this spirit seemingly have little regard for the word of God. They would rather experience God than study his word. They would rather worship God or fellowship with other believers than sitting under the teaching of of scripture, biblical scripture. And by the way, worship and experiencing God are not wrong, but they have to be in balance with each other. They're seemingly unmoved by the proclamations of God's judgment and disregarded as the poo-poo stuff that really is gloom and doom. And also are very quick to say, to pull out the scripture, hey, you don't judge me. Don't judge me. Thou shalt not judge. See, Old Testament Jezebel wanted to destroy Elijah, uh, the one who spoke an oracle of interested in the truth. Ahab also concluded that everything Elijah says to me is, is bad. <laughs> I don't even want to listen to him. But that's what happens when you're influenced by the spirit, by the Jezebel spirit. The Jezebel spirit pulled completely that they are right. Christians bound by this spirit believe that they are 100% right. They cannot see the deception at all. It's like members of other cults or religions. They believe sincerely that they are right, but that doesn't bring them any closer to the truth. So really, how do we tell whether it is true or not? And I would just simply bring you back to the old-fashioned Bible that we know so well, hopefully we know so well, and conclude with the, with the verse from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. The word of God is, it's, it's God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That's how we will stay on the right track. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Thank you for this opportunity of, of uh, worshiping together. Just grateful, Father, for, for every aspect of this service. And Lord, as we have looked into the mechanisms of the Jezebel spirit, Lord, I would pray that you would guard our hearts and help us not to get sidetracked in any way 
but to be faithful and to end well. And uh, just pray that uh, you would uh, keep us from falling and present us faultless, Lord. You've given us a wonderful promise at the end of that passage that we didn't even look at, but how we will rule if we are faithful to the end. Guide and keep us and direct us. In your name we pray. Amen. Keith, I'll let you.